Nice Games Club is on break for the next few weeks. How come? So your nice hosts can put together a relaunch of the show, including a brand new website that will make it easier for listeners to browse and discover all the content from the entire history of the program. In the meantime, your nice host picked out a few favorite episodes from the last year or so for listeners to revisit, or maybe here for the first time. This is episode 94, Somebody's First Episode, The Language of Games, Sequels, first published on July 10th, 2018. I think the title was a joke, but it's actually a pretty good first episode for new listeners. Uh, but to be honest, the real reason I picked this one is because it has my very favorite behind-the-scenes games industry story. It's all about controller buttons. Be nice and have a listen. Well. <laughs> <laughs> you said to start, Mark. <laughs> yeah, I was talking to you. <laughs> oh, let's, let's do it. <laughs> uh, we have big news. Big news. Yeah. Two of our games that we're working on are wishlistable on Steam. Oh, man. What does that even mean? <laughs> I guess you can say you might purchase this one day in the future if you feel like it. Uh-huh. That's pretty much what. And if it ever goes on sale, Steam will send you a ton of emails about it. Yes. Cool, cool. So look out for that next summer. We've, uh, we've established bothering mechanisms. This is great. Yes. Uh, <laughs> for which games? Uh, Clawbreaker and Widget Satchel. Hey. Yes. And the first of those has a release date. Yes. yes. Right? Clawbreaker will be released on August 16th. Yes. It's a Thursday. There's going to be a party. We're not sure where yet. Though. <laughs> we will let you all know <laughs> when and where that will be. We can have a party for Widget Satchel, I guess. We should I don't do know. That. I don't want to party. Yeah. Parties or something. Well, we'll see how the Clawbreaker one goes. Maybe we'll, <laughs> maybe we'll model ourselves on that. Yeah. Uh, Widget Satchel, also a wishlistable on Steam. Uh, both games are also, um, uh, will be available on Itch yes. as well. And they both have pages on Itch. Yes. We'll link um, to those in the mm-hmm. description. If you don't know what Itch is, because some people don't. Right. It's uh, another storefront that is more friendly to indie games by letting you decide, the, the creators decide how much they want to give a cut to Itch as opposed to Steam. Which right takes a bigger cut so. yeah itch also has uh like uh, models for developers to do like choose your own price and it's it's much more focused on uh being a, lo- a place for free games as well yeah so it's really friendly to indie devs to sell their sort of mid-cost titles mm-hmm. um uh you know using a traditional model or, or a new one but then also it's great for game jams demos uh, experiments and so it's and it's also really friendly for users who want to help curate that stuff so it's it's great we should totally do an episode on Itch. Yeah, that's a good idea. We did one on Steam. We can do one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so Widget Satchel will be released this year. Yes. But near the end of the year is, yes. is what we're thinking. That is our plan. Um, there's some wheels a turning on that stuff. So no no date on that one yet. Yeah. But uh, but Clawbreaker, in, uh, when you hear this, it'll be less than a month. Oh, man. Um, oh, right? boy. Or no, it'll be about a month. I don't know. Calendar math. Calendar math. <laughs> What's the date again? August 16th. Put that in your calendars and wishlist those games, folks, because yeah. we, we worked real hard on them. <laughs> it's true. Steven worked on both. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I want them out <laughs> so you can play. Uh, also here in uh, Minneapolis, the, the Summer Games Done Quick happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it just ended as we're recording. It yeah. just ended last night yeah. at 3 a.m. Oh. It was sad, but it was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They did, their last run was uh, Final Fantasy VI or... America's Final Fantasy VI, Japan's Final Fantasy III. Sure. Uh, nope, it's the other way around. Oh, yes, that's it. Yep. Japan, no, wait, whatever. <laughs> All the numbers. It's the one with the with the Magitech armor and everything uh-huh. that we played on the Super NES. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you say NES. 
We're going to blow right by that. <laughs> okay. uh, I yeah. say it the correct way. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like. It's the children who are wrong. <laughs> anyway. Um, I, I really like having summer games on QuickUp because, like, mm-hmm. I just have it up on my computer while I'm working. You can hear people talking and stuff. Yeah. And it's fun. I, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely one of those casual watchers where I really yeah. am only interested in the games I'm familiar with. Totally. And there's maybe like 15% of the games that run are games I've played. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but they're all really interesting. Um, and I don't keep it on in the background. Like, I will watch these, the, these things. Like, yeah. I focus on them because I'm, the familiarity helps. Um, and I always watch it after the fact, like on YouTube. I don't really ever, ever watch it live. Mm. But I know it's a big part of the experience for people um, with the, like, endlessly scrolling tw- Twitch chat. <laughs> yes. They have they switched to a subscription model, though. So, like, you can't chat on it unless you are subscribed to Twitch or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So... That's a little of, less chaotic. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> it's real, it was really cool last night towards the end. Um, they... Like people started organizing through donation announcements, like time time stamps on the run where they would all donate five dollars. Mm-hmm. So like they, you would, they someone would be like, "I'm donating this amount so that I can announce that at six fifteen we are going to all donate five dollars." And then when that number hit, like the thing just the the donation counter just started flying up. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> That's great! It's so exciting! That's nice, amazing. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, the donations all for SGDQ and AGQ, the different charities like Doctors Without Borders. Okay. Yeah, it's really cool. They mm-hmm. raised last night. The total was like two million one hundred thousand something. Wow, that's a record, right? It was like um, one eight last year, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it might be a record for SGDQ, but it didn't beat. I don't think it beat AGQ's right, record right. in twenty. That's awesome games. That's the original. Uh, version that happens in the winter. Yes, yes. Uh, in the, somewhere else, not in Minneapolis. Yes, right? and they just moved it. They they made an announcement that's going to be in what's what's the state that's MD? Maryland. Maryland. It's going to be in Maryland. <laughs> Which awesome games done quick? Yeah. Okay. Summer games done quick. Still going to be here. Yeah. Okay. Good. Because mm-hmm. I want to go. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. You know, it's funny. We say this every year, but like, it's impossible to go. Like, it's a lo- it's a, ostensibly a local event for yeah, us. Yeah. But like, it doesn't feel that way at all. Right. Because it like it kind of just happens, and mm-hmm. we can't. And nobody take, I know ever goes. Yeah, because you got to take work off and stuff. <laughs> and it costs a lot of money to go to, like, you don't want to go to every night, maybe. I don't know. That stuff. But I want to go. But I, sorry. <laughs> I'll figure it out one day. Mm-hmm. Next next year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one that I really wanted to, to note that was really interesting was the, it was a Super Mario 3 race. Did you see that one? I, I watched it afterward, ah. yeah. There's two players uh, playing, and they were playing... Um, uh, the uh, fortress uh, variant where you didn't have to beat all the airships you just had to beat all the fortresses which is where those sort of mid-level castles where the boom booms live yeah and um it's sort of an interesting way to play it. and that's what's really fun about these is coming up with new conditions for speed runs yeah and um and so the, the two players were talking it out as they were playing and it was sort of very little friendly rivalry between them they were all within like seconds of each other for most of the way mm. and then uh, one of the players uh died and was like oh and kind of like whipped his controller uh, like just very lightly, like yeah. not a big deal, and then it's it's soft locked the other player's console. Oh no! And so and there and he just put his hand. The guy who who instigated it, yeah. he put his head in his hands and just was like, "I'm sorry, I'm so sorry." Oh, and, no. the, and all, all the crowd was laughing. Oh. and the guy who's who, who, the other one was just like, "Oh, that's hilarious!" Like, <laughs> you know, because the thing about these speedrun competitions yeah. is like, no one's going for a world record, right? So it's in it's in such a friendly spirit. There's never I've never seen one of these things where anyone's gotten like emotionally distraught yeah. or taken things too seriously. And so the spirit of it was definitely alive. And mm-hmm. so. 
uh, he's like, no, no, I'll just start over. Keep going. And he's just like sulking for like the four minutes it took the other guy to catch back up. Oh, wow. And then the whole time everyone's trying to convince him. No, no, we can keep doing. We can keep going. And he's like, no, I ruined it. I ruined it. Oh, man. And then they finally catches up. And then they now he's like, well, I don't have all the same items because I took shortcuts to get to catch up. So yeah. they change the rules of the competition on the fly. <laughs> oh my goodness! And That's then, so awesome. And they're, then they're going again, and it's like really riveting because yeah. he's caught back up. He sort of like gave him uh, like uh, the uh, sportsman like a uh, 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 starting at the same place again. And then they're on World Eight in ba- Bowser's Final Castle. Mm-hmm. Same deal, mm-hmm. and the same thing happens. Oh no! <laughs> the console breaks down again, <gasps> and so. And they and like clearly there was some loose connection or yeah. some like uh, a melted solder or something in that console that was kind of making it susceptible. Mm-hmm. And so the player who was you know felt like it was his fault was just like <laughs> and like as they were getting towards the end the 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 player whose console had broke was actually was behind, mm-hmm. but the player who was ahead had just lost a power up that would have saved him like ten seconds in oh. the final boss. Uh-huh. And so even though he was ahead by a couple seconds, it was like. It was really anybody's game at that point oh, wow. in, in a really interesting, riveting way. And then it just kind of broke again. <sighs> and so he was so like distraught. And then he, the, everyone, they just convinced him, just, just finish it, just finish it. And so he did, but like kind of like half-heartedly ended up a small Mario, oh. like didn't get to do any of the fun strats oh. and just, it just beat the game. And then uh, meanwhile, the other player is racing to do what's called a wrong warp, mm. which is where you go to a world seven and do this weird combination of things. It's totally not different from what their run was. Yeah. You do this weird combination of things where um, you actually are manipulating the memory in the console to uh, warp directly to the end, the end title scene or the, the, the end cut scene. Huh. And uh, did it before the credits were finished on the other player's oh, yeah. normal awesome. run. And it was just like... <laughs> I mean, really, what you should have done is not listen to me say any of this. You should just go watch the thing. We'll link. It's super interesting. We'll link to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, it was super cool. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, wow. So, more. that's what I like. I like those kinds of stories. I don't really care so much about this thing you can do in Castlevania. I'm just, I just want to hear, like, I like the, 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 the stories of the moment. You know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And, uh, the, I, although, ex- explaining the things is really fun. I watched the uh, Rise of the Tomb Raider uh, um, speed run mm-hmm. uh, another game I played so it was and, and just watching him like just clip through everything nice. and break break the game all the time and describe all that stuff's kind of yeah. cool mm-hmm. yeah. one day we should try to get Widget Satchel on there man we've been designing Widget Satchel with some speed with some speed runny kind of things yeah. in mind and I'm like man that community is like they're very discriminating like they will you know they will judge us if we're appropriate for their their you know style of play yeah. and I and we're not speedrunners, no. so I'm. But neither were the people who designed the games that are speedrunnable. So I mean, right? Yeah. <laughs> so here's hoping, right? Yeah, yeah. We should. We definitely gonna need some people to test it for that specifically. Mm-hmm. Oof, I can't wait. Yeah. And on that note, yeah. Uh, Come on, Arthur. We're all counting on you. Um. Uh. <laughs> you have to know that. I don't. Um. <laughs> you, have you have to, to know. You have to press A to, to jump. To go fast. <laughs> okay. That was No, I don't know. I don't have anything, you guys. I'm sorry. That's all right. You get you get your you got your on days and your off days. I just really hope this is somebody's first episode. I don't know what we're doing. <laughs> Hello everybody. <laughs> I'm good at tra- cop topic. Ugh. I'm good at talking. And now we're gonna talk about the language games. <laughs> All right. That was, yeah, yeah. That was a much better. Nice save. Nice save. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> okay, so I wanted to talk about um, those 
like gaming conventions, mm -hmm. things that you, a lot of games do and that you just intuitively know how to do because you've played a lot of games, but aren't necessarily written down anywhere. Or like, if you haven't played a lot of games, you wouldn't necessarily know. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted Mark to do his topic on gaming conventions so we could do gaming conventions and gaming conventions as the two <laughs> topics, but... That didn't work you out. You can't have everything in life. <laughs> <laughs> Darn. <laughs> Just think how that transition would have went. <laughs> it would have been so great. <laughs> we'll never know now. <laughs> Lost to time. Yep. Episode question mark. So, yeah. So, like, press A to jump is one. Mm -hmm. um, and health bars. I know you've got a lot of opinions about health bars, Stephen. I have a lot of opinions about a lot of things. But specifically about HUDs and stuff. I can go on on that, but I wanted to talk about HUDs in a different episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But health bars are our language that people, that like we have in games that are kind of weird because like people don't work by health points. Like if you get hit in the arm, you don't suddenly lose five health points. You, you know, your arm hurts. <laughs> so it's like a different language. Ah, my health bar. <laughs> <laughs> I, saw, I saw this tweet. The other day, uh, where uh, somebody, I think it was like like a DM was was talking and playing in, in Dungeons and Dragons and stuff, mm -hmm. and then somebody was like, "How much health do you have?" And then the DM was like, "Wait, hold on, you can't ask them how much health they have because we're in the world, and in the world you don't know how many health, how many health, uh, how much health you have." And so uh, the other person was like, "How are you feeling right now?" <laughs> and then uh, the person answered. Uh, from a scale of uh, 81 <laughs> to 85, I'm a, a, about a 57. <laughs> so That's amazing. Yeah. I, I want to see if I can find that and link that too. That's great. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah, there's a whole category of like uh, DM telling stories about their stupid players. <laughs> I love yeah. reading those. Uh, but uh, yes, health bars, they're weird. That's mm -hmm. all I had to say about that. Um, and that's changed. I'm thinking about first-person shooters. Yeah. Like there's mm -hmm. a there's a now two types of health bars: regenerative health and oh, yeah. health. And that was like in the mid 2000s. I think it was like a big like it was Halo the first one to do that differently. I might be thinking about that's wrong. because I think Halo had shields and those would regenerate. But like uh, oh, after you okay, lose okay. your shields, you still had your health and oh, that okay. would not regenerate. This might be then a Call of Duty thing or something. There was some big game that that popularized this, and then it became. Like it just completely shifted. All games are regenerative health. Yeah, you just duck behind cover or go around a wall uh -huh. because like it's not fun to die in the middle of a level, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so and, and and each firefight was the was the the metric by which you would survive or not. So that was kind of cool. But then people were like, no, 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 we want it. That that seems that was that's too easy, and it, it ends up being a different kind of challenge. I think now we're at a place where uh, game developers just choose what's best for their mechanics now, which is how they should do it, right? <laughs> but now we have those two bits of language, whereas yeah. or when it was new, it was weird to people, mm -hmm. right? Totally. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Like when these things first came out, they were like super innovative transgressions of previous, um, like tropes and yeah. conventions and mm -hmm. stuff, right? Like everybody just assumed there'd be health packs, and then all of a sudden there were no health packs, and they're mm -hmm. like, what? But it ended up working out, and so now you know you are somehow able to determine whether or not your game has health packs or not based on like how the game feels and the UI around it and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, health packs is another thing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, like I'm just thinking about like the earliest ver like D and D is where a lot of where health bars come from, like st stats. But a lot of early video games had like hit points, like hearts, right? Mm -hmm. Where you had like three. 
instead of like 50 or whatever. Right. And every damage would just deal you one or whatever. And it wasn't all games like that. But I'm thinking of an early example of Gauntlet. Where ah. you had a countdown, which is your health, that just ticked down. Oh, yeah. And every time you got hit, it you lost more of those points. Mm-hmm. Really weird. It, I mean, yeah. that, that system is so bizarre. But it, in a time where those things weren't so standardized, uh, it, was, it, found, it wasn't weird to people, I guess. Because everything was as different from everything else. That's true. Right? Also, that was an arcade game and they were trying to get you quarters. So like fair point. <laughs> having your health ticked out kind of helps with that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, but no, that's a good that's a good example. Mm-hmm. I like that. Uh, oh boy, we've ballooned this topic. <laughs> Continue, Martha. Sorry. Oh no no no! That's what I want is to just you know people to talk about it. That's the point of podcasts. Talk about it anyway. Yeah, um, Stephen. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um. Uh. So a lot of these. Things I'm getting on this list that I have uh, are from a discussion on Slack, um, our Slack uh, community group for Minneapolis Game Dev people. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing, another thing they said is like red barrels explode, and kind of uh, piggybacking on that is like red things are negative or ba- like dangerous, and mm-hmm. then green things are good and health or positive or mm-hmm. go forward. Yes. Um, and that how that is sort of a more of a cultural um, convention, like that isn't a lot of things in our like Western culture or whatever. Yeah, stoplights, etc. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, is that is that different in other parts of the world? Yeah, apparently, in I think someone was saying like in China, red is like like um, it's like good luck, good luck. Right? Yeah. Oh, and like positive financial things ah, okay. are red instead of going into the red like that's negative here yeah huh that's interesting um so yeah so like there's different color cues that might not translate to different mm-hmm. groups and it's interesting that we picked red and green because those are like really common um colorblind things yeah. to like not be able to distinguish between <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's true mm-hmm yeah, speaking of red exploding barrels, we just added those to Widget Satchel. <laughs> <laughs> we did. We didn't make them green. Ooh, we should make them green. No, we shouldn't make them green. They do go boom. So, so. They, work, they work as expected. <laughs> yes. There's a level or a, a track in Hydro Thunder that's called Castle Von Boom. And ah. it's got lots of exploding barrels. <laughs> and they're and red. They're all red. Nice. Yes. <laughs> I've seen a lot of like more realistic games try to play with this in a way that's like, there's a little, little red label on a normal barrel or something. Yeah. Like, you're not fooling anybody. <laughs> we know it's explosive. Yeah. Goodness. Well, you know, that's the thing you want players to know. Like, yeah. it's that language that's so important. And, uh-huh. like, as, as we put worlds onto our games, that the language of games becomes sort of, the, it tugs at it a little bit. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah. In, 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 the, in the more realistic games, they'll, like, they play with it in a way that makes sense for the real world that, like, because like we have signs that are make things clear that this is hazardous or explosive or right. whatever else, so they'll just use that language mm-hmm. and they'll put that on their barrels, and then it's clear. But like they'll also color them red because it's e- extremely obvious at that point. Um, <laughs> at least for people who play games a lot. Uh, so, whereas uh, in the real world, a red barrel usually just has like oil in it, right? Yeah, which <laughs> could be explosive. Still, yeah, you could burn it. Not if you burn it. Yes, <laughs> just burn it all. Well, that's just mo- that's movie logic. Then. It's just, like, then you shoot one of those, but that's true. That's probably it might have been where a lot of those come from. Like mm-hmm. you see the the oil drum kind of serve as exploding barrels, even though it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another example. This is like in Borderlands. They have things that are like 
red that are explosive. And then anything that has a green light on it, like lockers or washing machines, mm-hmm. <laughs> you can open them and there'll be like loot inside. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So like you're just trained to look for like green glowing lights because that's good. Yeah. 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 Treasure. I, re- I love systems like that because I think those systems in the real world that are like that are very useful. So I like when they're in games and I like when they're sort of taking their logical extreme. A really good example of this and it uses red as well uh, in a different way is mirror's edge. Mm. Oh yeah. Where the, the correct path or the, or are you the paths that are open to you are in red and they're sort of subtly tinted, right? Everything in the world is very white Yep. Very uh, 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 monochromatic mm-hmm. um, or desaturated, rather. And then uh, red things tend to be your path. I think orange things are like um, uh, manipulatable objects. Uh, I kind of forget exactly what all the things are, but there's these really, uh, 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 this color language that is not, that is unique to that game. Yeah. Um, and I really like it. They called it runner's vision. Yeah. The idea was that, like, if if you're a runner, this it's a parkour game. And if you're if you're a runner, then you understand this, and this is how you see it. Mm-hmm. It's not really what the world looks like, but th- there's no like uh, you know like um, you know wavy of particle effects or anything. It just it's a very uh, clean aesthetic design. I really liked it. Um, yeah. But the way they fictionalized it was to say that this is just how uh, the run- well, how she sees the world, the main character. Now in the sequel. They just mess it up completely where they're like, you have these embeddable contact lenses that yeah. highlight different uh, things using yeah. the runners. It just ruined it completely. Yeah, like it, it, it ended up giving them more flexibility to do more things with it. Like it could turn on and off. And so you mm-hmm. could like, it, you could like introduce dramatic moments where you don't have those cues and stuff like that. But it ended up kind of ruining what was really good about and innovative about that particular use of yeah. color uh, for their systems. There's a lot of things that were wrong with that sequel. Yeah. Speaking of sequels. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to it. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, one that you brought up, Stephen, is right trigger to shoot. Yes. Um, I use the left trigger most of the time, just the right one. And the left trigger is normally used to like aim more. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That's true. In, in, in most shooters, anyway. I think a lot of that is because people are right-handed, and you pull a trigger like a gun, yeah. so that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But the left to aim, right to shoot also has a right to left like temporal pattern. Oh. You know what I mean? Like oh, yeah, first and second. You do the left thing first and make sure you can aim correctly and yeah. then you shoot with the... Ah. So I wonder if those just stumbled into each other or if there was real more deliberate uh, uh, design there. Yeah. Um, I, I would bet that is kind of... Some of that is just coincidence and that's one of the reasons why it's endured. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, it, I think it might have just started just because... Uh, also, the face buttons are on the right and those are action buttons. Right. So there's... you know. Well, yeah. Part of the reason why they do that is because then you can use that... You can still have your face buttons to do stuff and then also uh, shoot with the trigger. So like yeah. your thumb is free to do things, right? Right, right. To right. aim and shoot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like that, there's a reason for that convention, I suppose. Right. That's why shooting moved off the face buttons to a trigger at all. Yep. Um, yeah. Exactly. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has a lot to do with um, hand and that, like how it, how our hands work. Yeah. Um, there's actually there's a really good one there where uh, the difference between Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3 in that era of consoles. On the Xbox 360, the triggers were uh, nice and squishy mm-hmm. and felt like, you know, uh, 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 had good action. Yeah. On the PlayStation 3, the analog triggers were not great. No. And so many games, because you don't actually need analog control to fire a, a weapon in most games, 
Um, the standard on PlayStation Three was the the bumpers. The, oh, or, that's right. L one R one. Yeah. Were the firing buttons for most games that were cross platform. Hmm. Um, and I think Sony themselves did it as well. I mean, most games in general. Yeah, like Uncharted. I think you shoot with the with the uh, yeah. shoulder buttons. And so it was. I there was. Um, I'm trying to think of there was a series where I played one on Xbox and one on PlayStation, mm-hmm. and it was like kind of confusing. And I was like, oh. I know why these are different. I didn't discover it until then. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the triggers on the, the PS3 controller were not great. But on the PS4, they're really good. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, that convention has changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, now they're the same on, on both of those. Yeah. I've, I was just thinking about how controllers, like there's a whole language around those, like the fact that we call the, the top buttons on the top shoulder buttons yeah. and yeah. the buttons on the front face buttons. It's yeah. like we're mapping it to a, a face and, Oh, so a body. Yeah. Sort of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, also with that is button placement. Uh, like you were saying, like Nintendo and, and Sony, or it was Sony versus everybody else, right? Or how did that work? You, you knew yeah, about so, that. Yeah, so, okay. So I love this story. I love telling this story. <laughs> I think that, um, I'm sure parts of it are apocryphal, but so what Martha's referring to is that on, on a Nintendo console, the A button is the right right face button on xbox uh a is the bottom face button of the, of the diamond pattern and on playstation the cross button which is the main action button is also on the bottom um so nintendo is the odd, odd man out in this scenario but the story is much more interesting than that so nintendo uh was the super nintendo establishes the diamond pattern the four abxy right um and then uh some you know a couple years later uh, sony sony comes out with the playstation it has its four things. They very specifically didn't want to use letters. They didn't want to use numbers the way that the Sega was using on the Genesis. Oh, yeah. They're like, let's do something new and different. We're a new player. And, um, you know, I think a lot of that was just the desire to be different more than any other logical reason. I think the designer would even say so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, now in Japan, um, the circle means uh, is a yes. It's a check mark. Right. That's a culturally. That's what that means. And the X, oh. X is no. Right. So yes and no. So, whereas um, in, in America, like, it's not exactly the opposite, but um, X feels more like an action to us, and so X and O, so anyway, so the, the PlayStation in Japan, to this day, in fact, um, has uh, the circle button is the main action button, and the X button is the, is the back button. Oh, yeah. It, yes, and, when, and you know, uh, for developers who are making games on PlayStation, um, if you release it in Japan, you want to stick to that, and then you, if you release it in the West, you do switch it. So it's uh, uh, games are different depending on what region they are because players expect that. So in Japan, uh, Sony is the same as Nintendo because that's that's how it goes, right? Now, when uh, uh, PlayStation came to America, Sony America, the division uh, of Sony, was not thinking too much about the future, mm-hmm. and they were like, you know what? It makes more sense to have this the X the cross button be the action button and the circle button to be the secondary back button that feels more right to us as Americans mm-hmm. so they switched it and then PlayStation became enormously popular right around the world and, yeah. and, and the American game audience is the biggest audience in the world and so when Microsoft came into play mm-hmm. they needed their own li- little thing and now uh, Microsoft hit us in PC gaming where like generic controllers used you know ABC ABXY whatever yeah. so they weren't as interested in being different so like mm-hmm. well we'll just use letters it's fine but Mo, like the audience they were going for were PlayStation gamers, mm. so they put A on the bottom. Oh. 
Ah. And so that is what's going. So it's all Sony America's fault. <laughs> and um, so it, we think of Nintendo as being different. And Nintendo will never change. It's like iconic no. to the Nintendo brand, yeah. like more so than even for the others. I don't think well, that the others will change, but. It right. makes sense too when you when you're thinking about the Game Boy because the Game Boy only had two buttons. Yeah, and they put still put them in the same configuration too. Yeah, and on the on the yeah. original Nintendo, it was B A, and that seems because a lot of time people remember like the two buttons and they're just horizontally placed. Mm-hmm. Like, why isn't it A B? Why is it B A? It's because A is closest to your thumb, and B mm-hmm. is a little further inward to the controller. Yeah. So that that's where that comes from originally. And um, so uh, yeah, Nintendo's the odd one out there, and they'll never change. Um, but in Japan, uh, Microsoft is the odd one out, and the Xbox does not sell in Japan. Right. Not, not for that reason, but for other reasons. Uh-huh. So it's for for a lot of uh, Eastern gamers, it, there's not a problem. Mm. It's just not a problem. Um, I'm actually really curious about the PlayStation, like the the cross and circle, like how it's distributed. I know in Europe and, and America, North America and in South America, uh, it is cross is the main, and in Japan, circle is the main button. But I'm curious about like uh, in you know Southeast Asia and China. Like in those other regions in Korea, like what do they do? And I think a lot of that probably has to do with the cultural cachet of the cross meaning a check mark, mm, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure that's that's probably what what tells it. But I think in most places it is like it, we have it in America, um, because most regions take their cue from you know uh, American conventions. I just I love that story because like people complain about it, like why won't one just change? It's like it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Nintendo's fault. Yeah, it's not. They've Nintendo's been fault. consistent this whole time. This whole time, yeah. <laughs> I still want to just blame Microsoft. Yeah. Because <laughs> side note though, the the, the Dreamcast uh-huh. had an ABXY did. that was set up like the Xbox One, and and so I don't really know where that comes into it. I think the story is cleaner without that as a side note, but mm. that might have something to do with it because it oh. came out around the same time as the Dreamcast or the, the first Xbox. Right. Um, but I don't really know what the story is there. Why they why they abandon ABC, for example? Mm-hmm. Like I don't know. That's a good story. Yeah. Like so if you're not playing with a controller, um, you probably are playing with a keyboard. Why would you though? <laughs> good question. Because Mark. PC gaming. <laughs> Just use controllers. But the PC though, and the mouse and the clicking. Mouse <laughs> <laughs> and the clicking. <laughs> I mean, it's like greatest hits on this episode. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so, um, because on most keyboards, the, the arrow keys are on the right side, mm-hmm. like the t- convention has been to use the WASD keys as arrow keys instead so that you mouse with your right hand, WASD with your left hand. Yeah. Do left-handed gamers switch it so they can use the, you know, I've never noticed that. My, I would guess um, that let people who use their mouse with the left hand, I'm just guessing now, but I would guess they use IJKL. Oh. Um, uh, just as sort of like a mirroring kind of thing. But it might be that they use, because a lot of times laptop keyboards or certain keyboards, the arrow keys are not arranged exactly the same. Right. Um, I really would be curious to know that too. I'm not certain. If you're left-handed, let us know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm left-handed, but I use a computer with my right hand. Oh. Um, and, and Yeah, I thought you were left-handed, so yeah, that's why yeah. I looked at you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, do, I do a lot of things right-handed just because it's the world we live in. <laughs> so I play I'm guitar right-handed. <laughs> no, I, it's a, a side note. I love being left-handed on a computer because I do, I do almost all my drawing now digitally with my right hand, mm. but, I'm, but I sketch with my left hand. And when I'm on the computer, it's really, it's, I can't use like a, a Wacom tablet, like, because it doesn't quite, I don't have enough hands to do the right things exactly. Sure. Um, I really like uh, having that because my left hand is free to draw, sketch, uh, um, you know, spin a pencil, 
like uh, do uh, cognitive things with my left hand, which is uh, my dominant hand, mm-hmm. while I'm using my right hand to do my dominant activity. Oh, so, so I feel like I, it's like a weird, it's like a pop psychology theory I have that like I'm just really effective because I I'm sort of I could use both halves of my brain or something. Like, like it feels more efficient because you're doing more stuff. I honestly don't know if that's the case, but okay. it really feels like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now playing guitar, it ruined me because oh, yeah. I'm like, oh great, my left hand is for all the fingering. That's the complicated stuff. Wrong. Finger picking is the complicated stuff, oh. and I can't do that oh. <laughs> because I never learned because that's my right hand, and that's just strumming up and down. That's all I ever taught it to do. So. Sad story. Yeah. All right, go on. <laughs> <laughs> did they make left hand side note? Did yeah. they make left hand guitar hero guitars? Um, you can just play it left handed. Oh. Um, oh yeah, I suppose because it's not actually you don't have there's no up and down yep. like differentiation between and buttons. And on most of them, you can unscrew the little attachment that like the strap attached to and flip it to the other like hook part of the guitar so that it will actually flip over. I oh, think that's pretty cool. standard on all those plastic oh, guitars. I thought that was just you could spin your guitar around in shows. Also a reason for it, I'm sure. <laughs> I guess. I don't play guitar. <laughs> Clearly. I need a bass clarinet, and that would be dangerous to be spinning around. So, yeah. Whack. <laughs> <laughs> right in the face. <laughs> How did Steven what, knock himself out? Um, he's just doing his cool bass clarinet tricks. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's edit this out. <laughs> so back to WASD. Yes. Like I do notice some keyboards have like um, special like gamer keyboards. Uh, Martha's smile is really <laughs> amazing right now <laughs> to see her light up at this idea. Um, they have like uh, uh, metal keys because they get a lot of wear. <laughs> oh wow! Do they really have metal keys? For- oh, yeah, and yeah, I you can get like special like keys that you can put in there and also like that have like texture on them so you can find them without having to look at the keyboard and then you can get them where they light up a different color than the rest of the keyboard (laughs) it's very cool okay continue (laughs) well the ones i'm most interested in and i don't think this is caught on with anybody because i don't think there's a lot of developer support which is analog keys Mm. right that lets you do actual proper strafing instead of just tap 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 to like you know, Inch step away. a little bit. Yeah. That's the problem I've always had with, with with mouse and keyboard is the mouse is like fully fluid and analog and point and click as you've described it, Martha. Uh, and, but the the WSAD is just so crude, like compared to a cons having two analog sticks, and it doesn't bother people because games are not designed to require that level of uh, uh, um, uh, intricacy with strafing movements. Mm-hmm. But why not? Like. I'm I'm always confused about that. Yeah. You should make a game called Strafe Hero. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody will play it. But there are there are some keyboards that have analog uh uh keys for those. Huh. Uh, and so they can be supported. So they like so they like you can press different parts of them or It's just um it just is it becomes a value of 0 to 1 as you press it down on uh. an analog scale. So games that only support normally will just once they read the 1 It'll just, you know, I think there's a, there's a piece of software that translates it, I think, to the game. So it's not, I don't think it needs to be explicitly supported, but games that allow for um, analog control, or I'm sure there's some utility which lets you map those keys to like the left joystick or something so that it kind of re- gives those proper values. I, I haven't looked into it in a while, but I always thought that was really interesting, but I don't think gamers care. Like, because they're just used to what they're used to because it's a convention, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Mm-hmm. So you were talking, Stephen, a little bit about before about um like characters and culturally we think like if we see a big big character beefy character mm-hmm. that they're going to be a tank yeah. and if they're little they're going to be super fast right right yeah like this is <laughs> definitely the case in fighting games if you have a big 
brawny character. They're normally uh, uh, they normally are they move slow, but they pack heavy punches. And then the smaller characters are fast uh, and light, so they'll deal a little damage with each hit, but they're really quick, so they can get in and out really fast. So yeah, that's a, a normal convention. I guess it's largely the case just because in general, fast things move fast, or or, or small things move fast, and big things move slow. That's generally the case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that comes from sort of the the um, almost like an animal instinct mm-hmm. um, that that we have. Like, right. we, it, it's not. I don't know. If that's a gaming convention, but it's been solidified. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah, like you can pick your character just by by sight. Some most of the time, yeah, if you want to, yeah. like, you know, figure out what mechanics that you're going to be able to do. Exactly. You know what is weird about that is Mario Kart, which has always done this, even from the first one, I think, mm. where Bowser was a little slower but could knock you further if you got hit, and yeah. Toad was zippy and and and, and oh weak. yeah. But uh, Mario Kart characters like actually physically like how they're really representative do, are not that different in size yeah that's true and so it's actually kind of, and now that there's so many characters mm-hmm. like knowing the difference between like yoshi and luigi like there are differences yeah. but they don't they're the same height basically yeah in terms of mario kart it's also really weird in mario kart because the big like in the newer ones anyway uh the bigger characters have faster uh max speed but slower acceleration and the, the yeah. smaller characters have lower max speed but higher acceleration Oh, okay. So, like, which that, there's some logic to that. Yeah, but it might be. It's a little counterintuitive, perhaps, to some mm-hmm. people. Yeah, but that's mm. weird. I guess it's like momentum in that way. Like, they takes a little bit for the bigger characters to get going, but once they do, they keep going. Right, right. Of course, the, where this breaks down is it's it's irrespective of which vehicle they have. Right. Yeah. Which, would, yeah. which would really make the difference. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you got to haul all of Bowser around. You got mm. you got to have a powerful engine for that. Yeah. <laughs> Can't be doing that in a scooter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So the next thing on the list is saves and auto saves. Like when games first started, there really wasn't a save thing. You just had to like start over basically, right? Mm-hmm. And then they implemented passwords or was that before? Did well, that was a way before? around having to have any memory. It's just to yeah. have checkpoints pre-built. With, yeah. You know, Metroid did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they used it. They did that a lot on Game Boy games. And I remember we had like lists of checkpoints yeah. uh, as kids. It was great. But now we've gotten to the point where, like, you can save and come back to whatever you were doing, or save and re- or make a new decision or whatever. Yeah, you. Don't, I mean, most games you don't have to save at all. Yeah, it, it right? just doesn't. Yeah, the work. act of saving is just not as much of a thing. Mm-hmm. But you know, go to a menu. Like games that still do require you to actually save your progress are really, really explicit about their warnings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're like, just so you know, this is not one of those games. Yeah. Near Automata does that. Really? Like so, the first, the first in the demo, that that first section. If you die at all, you have to go back to the beginning because you can't save, and it's there's a story reason or blah blah blah. <laughs> um, um, and so a lot of people would complain. I like they get all the way to the boss and in that beginning section, and they die, and they have to start at the beginning. And they're like, what the heck? Uh, and but they're really explicit about it. They're like, this game does not have auto saves. Got to save every time, mm-hmm. and people still complain about it. And that was—that's actually a game mechanic in yes. that game. It's you're, that's supposed to be part of your gameplay experience. It's it's, yeah, there's it's so much of, meta. In it's that part game. of the gameplay experience and narrative experience because you're this yeah. robot that can rebuild itself, but only rebuild itself at certain stations. Yeah. So that's where you save. Mm. So you got to like go to a place to save. You can't just like make saves everywhere. Right. Right. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There's a bunch of games that like do kind of both auto saves and your own saves, mm-hmm. like um. I know Dishonored and Dishonored 2 do that, where you like it auto saves every so often, but then also you can explicitly make saves, and like that becomes part of it. If you mess up, you can go back and or like 
you're like, oh crap, I've killed this person. I didn't want to kill them. And so you can like go back to an old save. Yeah. Um, yeah, saving in, in is really useful in games where you uh, make a lot of decisions and uh, those impact like future decisions and stuff because you can always go back and make the new decision if you want. So like visual novels, they have a whole bunch of saves and stuff uh, because of that reason. So you can go back and make new decisions. Right, it's sticking your finger in the book yeah. before you turn the page. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And it's also like some games that there's like a over a higher level of save. Like, mm-hmm. um, like for example, most of the Pokemon games, you can only have one save right. file, yeah. like only one player, hmm. um, you, which is why it forced families to have to buy more than one if they had more than <laughs> one child. <laughs> um, but then like Zelda, you could have like three saves or something. Right, the save slot. Save right? slot. Yeah. That's the word I was trying to find. <laughs> yes. Um, and now most games have it so that you can have multiple games. Um, right. Right. So like an untold number because scroll lists can go forever. Yeah. Right. And I, I know there's like some things uh, for console games anyway. There's some sometimes this is done at the system level. Like I know PlayStation is per, not every game does it. But sometimes when you just hit save in a game, it takes you to a PlayStation menu and the list and just like new or replace or whatever. Um, and so that's kind of built in at the platform level on a lot of these these things now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you pick which which per, which user of the console you want to play right, as. Right. We just put in save slots in Witcher Satchel. Yes. We're gonna have three, just yeah. like just like the classic games. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> That's really cool. But you don't have to do it manually. It'll auto save for you. No problem. <laughs> yeah. I was listening to a talk, maybe it was at GDC, about save points mm-hmm. um and how Picking, like, figuring out where your save points should be is, like, really difficult. Yeah. Totally, because you don't want it to make it feel like the save points are giving you an advantage in a, in a, in a fight if you mess up, because that feels terrible. Uh, but you also don't want to have to do, like, 30 minutes of work every time. So, like, you got to place it in positions that make the player feel like it was fair, but uh, also not too not fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you want a little bit of that atten- that tension of right. like of of you don't want to lose your progress. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. you just don't. You just can goof off and just move forward. Right. You want the you really you want the players to feel like they're wait they're losing time but not progress. I think. Okay. I think that that's how I'm saying it now. I guess that's what yeah. it, that's the way I am interpreting it. Like in the middle of a boss, you don't want to you want to feel like if you die at this boss, you have to you know do the near automata thing and start the entire process <laughs> over. Um, but you also want to feel like you have to defeat this challenge and this is the time or this is like that time you set to focus on fighting it so like i think as a player i would be fine with uh using my time to fight this boss over and over and over again and failing and then hopefully succeeding eventually mm-hmm. whereas with uh, uh if i had to do the entire level over i feel like i'm wasting prog or losing progress each time right like you you died in the boss you didn't like so bring you back further than that mm-hmm. feels like it's just you you did that already. You yeah. pr- you proved yourself there, yeah. and so I think like deciding where those points are is really about breaking up your game into sort of like um, conceptual chunks. Yeah, where like a player would wouldn't even conceive to have to do it again once they get to a certain point. Right, and then also in the middle of it, if they do have to do it, that it makes sense to them to have to redo that part that they didn't complete that section. Mm-hmm. Right, and then certain games those are big sections, certain games those are smaller. Right. Um, yeah. Exactly. It's yeah, definitely easier said than done. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first got Borderlands the pre-sequel, I may or may not have gotten a legal copy. Um, <laughs> and uh, they may or, like, 
maybe maybe not legal copy had a glitch in it um where it might have it might have <laughs> had a glitch in it where um it the last t- two or three um fast travel points didn't spawn correctly mm-hmm. and wouldn't let me fast travel to them and they're basically the safe spots um because they're where you get respawned mm. so, and all of the enemies respawn if you get respawned back so um so I had to do the last part of the game basically straight with without oh, you would have had to right <laughs> if that was the thing that I did I now have a legal copy which may or may not have been the case the whole time <laughs> <laughs> it's all perfectly legal <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah uh when glitches happen with the saves that can really impact your game. Oh yeah, I think the the most furious uh, uh, gamers will get is when they they have to play the thing they liked again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh darn. I, I do like the way you boiled that down because well, that's like, just kind of what it comes down to. I like, know, but like I will still get extremely angry when I lose my save. Yeah. So. But like at the end of the day, it's like I enjoyed playing this yeah. game. Yeah, but I, it's totally like when the like saves get corrupted. It's totally the um, the film burns out in the middle of the third act or something. Yeah, yeah, it's like you know, at least in the old days, you couldn't just like turn off the projector, have everyone wait in the lobby for five minutes, and then go back. Mm-hmm. You, you had to re, you had to you can't you can't rewind thirty five minutes of film. Yeah, so you just had to like go to another screening late or something. It's that same feeling of yeah. like, Ugh, you know, yeah. It's just you did all this already, and it was fun. And I had a good time, but like I don't want to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's been some high profile cases of that. I mean, we could link to the show notes, but I think everyone knows what we're talking about. Basically, <laughs> you've yeah. probably heard about it. Like, but yeah, the, just the fury of it because it's like it isn't a matter of like, oh, this game has a bug that doesn't let me do this or whatever. Like, uh-huh. people get upset about that, or the. But I think people understand, or they find ways around it, or they make jokes about it. Right. I think when it's your save, yeah, like people have, they get more emotionally invested in that. Yeah. Yeah, especially if you've been building up a character and yeah. then you have to like make the same decisions or like you found really cool items in a like procedurally generated item yeah. thing or yep. whatever and you'll never find them again. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they just don't want to be told that it, in the end it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Burn on gamers, so I, I guess. <laughs> I don't know why I'm so salty about that. I don't, I'm just like, well, the things that matter to you matter to you. Yeah, through yeah. that. I do want to bring up that, like, in in video games, oftentimes you'll find food in the weirdest places, but it always gives you help. <laughs> like trash cans or dumpsters. Yeah. Or enemy carcasses. That's weird. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that is a good point. Right. Like, you just stabbed this enemy, and it bled all over, and now yep. you're getting the meat from yep. the thing. Yep. Or, like, they're a full, carrying a, full, a whole yeah. loaf of bread. Yeah, that, or a fully cooked chicken. Yeah, the chicken in the garbage can. It's like the streets of rage or uh-huh, something. Yeah. Oh man, that's uh, I love that trope <laughs> going way back. And that, that's that's a great fun thing for indie developers to do is to play on that language, that mm-hmm. that bit, that convention for gamers. The one I always find the most hilarious though is like Bioshock Infinite, oh, which yeah. is the most self serious game there ever was. Yeah, and you can find hot dogs in the garbage can. Like <laughs> wow. <laughs> like, why are they in the garbage? You can go to like the 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 bank yeah. and like go into the safety deposit box of this ruined thing uh, and find a bag of chips. Like, oh, that's it's crazy. That's it's because it's randomized, yeah. you know, a lot of that stuff, and mm-hmm. it's just like it breaks it breaks the illusion so completely. But that, that convention is so strong mm-hmm. that a lot of people don't question it at all. Oh. You know, right, right. Um, another one is like infinite inventory, where like you know, your your the main character has a bajillion oh, yeah. in two pockets. Oh yeah, and yeah. can just store. You know, uh, a shotgun in one pocket and a 
giant safe in another one and <laughs> thousands of dollars in the next. Yeah. Yeah. That's fun stuff. Yeah. I think who made this video? There's some, some comedy video where someone tried to, they tried to do a video game level, like LARP, LARP uh, in real life, a video game level with mm-hmm. picking up everything they found and somehow like attaching it to themselves. Uh-huh. And like at the end, they're like waddling with all this stuff. <laughs> pretty good i would love it if like a video game played off that to the point where like you could just literally take anything and put it in your inventory like enemies and stuff uh, or your health bar and just like slot it oh my god (laughs) steven i'll make this game with you (laughs) that does sound really interesting i know right let's do it it's just like analyzing the logical extreme of a system like that it's fantastic yeah call it the game of holding (laughs) (laughs) the game of holding oh my god You guys. <laughs> nice games club game jam. Next next jam. Let's do it. <laughs> yes. You know, it's funny. We have, um, you know, in Widget Satchel, the the conceit of that game is when you pick up collectibles, your satchel fills up and gets heavy. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. So weight is an important game mechanic in the game. Mm-hmm. So we were thinking like, oh, uh, that also changes how the pathing works. And long story short, we need to come up with some other type of collectible that would motivate you to get to secret areas, but not reward you with a bunch of widgets that would make it harder for you to get out of that area. Yeah. So we're like, okay, let's have a system called trinkets, where there's just like little bits of fun, jokey items that you collect that are just sort of like fun collectibles. And we're like, okay, great. But they have to weigh nothing. They yeah. have to conceivably weigh nothing. Yeah. Otherwise, it totally breaks the logic of the game. And you know, the game has a lot of broken logic if you really put your, you know, your mind to it. But right. we do have a set of sort of like narrative rules. And so it was kind of... It was a little tricky to come up with lists of things that would make sense that wouldn't feel like, oh, this is heavier than a nine volt battery, so it can't. It, it, so the player will it'll strain credibility to mm-hmm. to to use this as a trinket, and yeah. we ended up with it in a good place. Yeah, but like it took a lot more thinking than you might expect. Right. Well, actually, Widget Satchel is a good example of subverting conventions because normally mm-hmm. when you have inventory, it does yeah. not affect your movement at all. Um, but until in- you get like if there if if it affects your inventory, it's when you've reached. Over, over encumbered. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is the most obnoxious thing yeah. in Skyrim. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, like we, we we play with that because like in, especially in platformers, uh, like when you pick up a bunch of coins, you don't have to uh, think about like Mario not being able to jump as high or move. Yeah, where does he put those coins? <laughs> exactly. You don't that's, have to think. That's about the it. question that Widget Satchel answers. Yes, <laughs> in your Widget Satchel. <laughs> But like, there's there's examples of games that like break those conventions and things mm-hmm. uh, that that are sometimes frustrating yeah. when they do that. Uh, but even like, we had oh, go ahead. Nope. Okay. <laughs> even we had trouble uh, totally subverting that. Yeah. Because in our original uh, jam version, uh, we had this curve, which was as you picked up uh, each widget, would make you so much heavier, right? Mm-hmm. And then, but then we have to design platforming puzzles around this when we. It, which is difficult enough already to like do a system like that, yeah. and we've found. Yeah. But um, the, the thing is, if the uh, the change is so minute, then the player will have a, a hard time understanding it. So we implemented something called weight tiers, which is you can pick up as many widgets up to a certain point, and then your tier changes, and then that's when the stats change. And it, it doesn't really follow the rule that we established, which mm-hmm. is that everything makes you heavier. Mm-hmm. But narratively, it, that is still in place. It just now aligns better with using the the systems so the player will understand it better. And so each tier has a name and a UI element as well, which uh, for players who want to investigate it can really like find out. But for the most part, it, it you the the changes are at a threshold, 
And that makes it easier for us to design, and it makes it like possible for players to understand. Because mm-hmm. um, originally, it's like it's a, just a slow dawning, and then once they figure out the rule, they're like, "Well, then how do I know how much I can carry to jump this high?" And nothing in the game can tell you that without being really explicit about it. So we yeah. had to refine it and and dial it back a little bit in a kind of interesting way. Yeah, yeah. But like that's an example of trying to do that and trying to subvert the trope and like having difficulty doing it at the same time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, I mean, it's, it's fun to be able to design around those challenges with which it's actual. And like, uh, yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say, it's fun once you know all of these rules um, to like pick one thing to flip and, and yeah. that's how you can find new innovative games and game ideas and mechanics and stuff is like, what if we did it like this? <laughs> yeah. yeah. When you try to subvert these rules, that's when you learn why they're there in the first place. Yeah. So it's not just a matter of like a ball rolling down a hill. It, there are reasons for these things, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, we went over a lot of them in our, while we were talking here. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, like I want to specifically talk about this because I play a lot of Flint Hook. <laughs> and for some reason, the Flint Hook designers decided that Red equals good and green equals bad. <laughs> red equals you can buy this thing in the store. Green equals you don't have enough money for it. <laughs> and it is the most frustrating thing I think I've ever had to deal with in a game. It takes so much cognitive load while shopping to yeah. think, to ignore all the green things that are green and shiny and bright <laughs> and go for the thing that is red. Yeah. Like, ah. Uh, <laughs> Are there other really like good examples of ones that just break things for no good reason? Um, there's an example of thing, a game that breaks things for a reason. Uh, Eternal Darkness Sanity's Requiem that yeah. was, is a game on GameCube. I did not play because this is a horror game. Uh-huh. But the reasoning, <laughs> like this game will like, I guess you're like going insane or something, which is, you know, I guess is a troubling <laughs> way of saying things. But uh, the way that the, the game works is like it'll like, do a lot of tricks on you to make you stop playing the game or make you feel like you've lost progress or make you feel like something's wrong, like in a weird way. So like, for example, they might have like, you're playing through the game and you go down this hallway and then a pop-up might show up and say, your, your save was corrupted. Yeah. And players would be like, Oh no, I gotta start over. Like you were just saying, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> but uh, it is actually just like in the game that like, you, your save was not corrupted, but yeah. like it's, it's messing with the meta of the game itself. Yeah. Doesn't there also one where it like, it changes to a blue screen. It's just like video one in the corner or something. Oh yeah. To mimic as if your console was unplugged. Yeah. 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 Stuff like that. Yeah. It's beautiful. <laughs> like I love that idea. I'm never going to play that game. It's yeah. just scary. But I love that idea. It's really cool. This is a famous one in the first Metal Gear Solid game mm. where you're doing a boss battle and then and you're you're totally ineffective. You're, like he's invincible. Oh yeah. And I think you can hold your own, but you can't make progress. And there's subtle hints as to how to solve it. And the way to solve it is to unplug your controller, plug it into player two. Oh, that's right. Because then because player two because the, the, the boss reads your mind, and when you plug into player two, you you're hiding from his mind reading, basically. Yeah. Um, which is a clever, like the things about, I don't like those games for a lot of reasons, mm-hmm. but one of the nice about it is they do actually take a lot of that breaking the fourth wall in a way that still keeps it 
Like, or they, they sort of like see through the fourth wall without breaking it. Yeah. Exactly. Is maybe a better way to put it. That's a Kojima esque way of doing anything. Yeah. It's that kind of stuff. <laughs> and the other fun part about that one is that it'll, uh, the boss will read, if you have a memory card in yeah. there, it'll read, uh, there's a certain list of like other Konami games, I think, which it will like, the boss will say, oh, I see you like such and such. I don't know any other Konami games. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which was uh, even on the GameCube version, it was the same, a mm-hmm. couple of Nintendo games or something like yeah. that. Like the, the, like that's kind of cool that yeah. kind of stuff playing with what player right. knows and how they expect to engage with it mm-hmm. it's like um that game we played for one of the um uh, nice plays that would read read your um computers oh wow one oh, shot yes. one, one shot, shot. Yeah. yeah and it was like hello mark yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was weird um people on the slack when we were talking about conventions and stuff we're we're talking about um a couple games that messed with the health bar thing hmm. um and made it more realistic in different ways. Um, uh, is not short. Talked a lot about Project Zomboid, mm. which um, you have to use. Like if you get hit in, or some part of your body gets hurt, you get like it affects different parts of what you do. So like if your leg gets hit, then you move slower or something like that. Or yeah. if like if your arm gets hit, it takes longer to switch items or something. Ah, okay. Um, and then people were talking about. Um, Metal, Metal Gear Solid Three, um, where you had to use pe- like specific healing items to heal specific injuries, and you had to like use them in a specific order. Mm, okay. Um, and then you were talking about Bushido Blade, yes. or something I got like it that? confused with Samurai Showdown, which is a different game. It's a two D fighting game, and just, yeah. But Bushido Blade is a three D fighting game where like you're all samurais, and uh, there's no health bars or anything. It's when you if you get stabbed in the chest, you automatically die. Uh, but like, if you get stabbed in the arm or something, you don't die. You just lose the ability to use that arm or that leg or whatever that limb. Um, so it like it it changes like traditional fighting game uh, language in that way, hmm. which is pretty interesting. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, there's I just thought of this when we were talking about I was talking about Borderlands is they made a thing that instead of like when you first die, you go into this thing called fight for your life which is a little oh, yeah. countdown timer mm-hmm. and then if you can kill an enemy in that time you get revived automatically right which is kind of cool way to give you a second chance without being like weird about it or yeah. something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, um yeah are there any other games you can think of that like mess with the tropes and that we haven't already talked about um i think i might have mentioned this on the show before but one of the trouble things problems i had with assassin's creed origins was that the the uh, the swing the like the melee attack was mapped to the right uh bumper or l or r1 mm-hmm. and i had the hardest time getting over that because the convention for a lot of third person action games is to put it on uh x or square yeah um, right because it's melee yeah right the newest god of war does the same thing mm-hmm. it, like it has it on the trigger yeah. and it's meant to free up your thumb for other buttons but right. like, well, i'm not gonna do that i just <laughs> <laughs> well also with god of war you can throw your axe and stuff so okay. like it, there's some so reasoning some for mapping, it yeah but like i i could not do i didn't like it yeah yeah so. yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, there's always these little moments of like, yeah, are you fighting a convention because you have a good reason to, or are you fighting it to subvert it? Yeah. Um, or are you fighting it because you don't know better? <laughs> like, there's, I don't know. There's like a lot of different reasons why uh, the these rules are there and a lot yeah. of different reasons why you challenge them. Yeah. I've always wanted to make a game where like you, it's just a traditional platformer, but all the buttons are randomized. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and I, I'm debating on whether or not I want it to be like randomized every time you press the button. So you have to find the new jump button every time you press, even move. But that sounds just annoying. So sounds, maybe not. Sounds like a certain toothbrushing game. That we- <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, the tooth is out there. The first Game Jam game Martha and I worked on uh, had that where the controls were, you had to discover them. Yeah. Uh, and that was part of the part of the gameplay. Although for a full platformer, I think that would be like controller tossingly frustrating. Yeah, I imagine. So. But that'd be a, it'd be a good little uh, experiment that you know to put on itch. Yeah, right? I'm not trying to sell it to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to try. Yeah, don't take people's money for that. No. <laughs> Clawbreaker does weird control things because we had right. to make enough buttons for you to do everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do, you can you it is it is essentially platform mechanics, but you use the bumpers to move left and right uh-huh. instead of the arrows. Right, and the control oh. sticks move your arms. And mm-hmm. aim your arms instead of like moving the character. Yeah, it's really weird, but it works. And then consequently, you hold the thing like a claw. So yeah, it's great. Yeah, I don't think it's we... a crab-based control scheme, yeah. not a hu- not a human-based control scheme. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up is that my mom recently said that uh, she she like she played she really only played one game a lot, and it was Ghosts and Goblins. Yeah, when she was younger, um, and. Like as she's grown older and stuff, like she hasn't really played games. But me and my brother and my dad would play games all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom uh, was like, I, "If I ever wanted to play any of these newer games, I feel like I need to play the older ones to have an understanding of what the newer ones are gonna, how they work." Oh, it like um, it builds on it, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a history. So, like, yeah, it's kind of like it's really difficult if you haven't been playing games a lot to get into playing games because like a lot of these conventions that we were talking about do not make sense in the real world. Mm-hmm. And like when you like. If you have uh, no understanding of how video games work and you jump into a thing and you see you find this full whole cooked chicken in a dumpster, you're not going to eat it because it's in the dumpster. That's nasty. (laughs) But like uh, if you play games all the time, you just, you know, you need health and you're like, oh, this is food. I can eat it. And food will give you health. You know that. Yes. You might not know that. Right. Right. Yeah. Like so like all those kinds of things, it's kind of like. These are the kinds of things we don't think about. Like we make games, we play games, but like we don't think about how it it's kind of difficult to even approach games because of all of these different languages that we have an understanding of yeah. that uh, people who have not experienced games don't have. That's definitely true. When you're trying to target your game to an audience, you have to say like, well, what does what can I expect this audience to bring to it? You know, yeah, like you find a, a turkey in a garbage can, you're like, I'm not gonna eat that, I'll fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> There's a really good example. There's a, a, a really long Twitter thread by Rami Ismail where he uh, he uh, he, uh, he sort of uh, documents his mom learning to play Final Fantasy 15. And the first tweet is like, got my mom Final Fantasy 15. She's learning twin stick controls. And then it's just like dozens of tweets. And then, then she went and played Dragon Age Inquisition. And now she's playing like a oh. lot of games. And, like, oh. and it's, it's a really interesting story of someone learning how to play modern games. Uh, shepherded by someone who is like very friendly and like a, a wonderful guide uh, like uh, uh, Rami Ishmael is. And I find that really interesting. Um, my wife, Dale, um, her first like twin stick game was Portal 2. We played the co-op mode together. Mm-hmm. And uh, Portal 2, uh, I guess because Valve makes it and they made, they're more of a PC game developer at, at their heart, there's a lot of uh, control options you can have, including changing the twin sticks so that the left stick is move back and forward and turn left and right. And then the right stick is um, strafe left and right and look up and down. 
which it, oh. which it, it it switches what the horizontal movement on both sticks does. Yeah. And Dale preferred um, playing that for a long time, and I kept trying to tell her, like, not every game is going to let you do this. Yeah. But she insisted, and that's how she was able to get into that. And, you know, she's played a lot of games, uh, including Final Fantasy XV, mm-hmm. and she's got it now. But, like, it, it does, when you're just not familiar with it, it takes a while. And I, what I think find funny about that scheme in particular is that's how GoldenEye works. The first, like, console first person shooter basically oh. where the analog stick was turning left and yeah. right and the the c buttons were strafing and looking up and down oh and i remember yeah you're right and i remember when i uh because that was the i played that game a lot uh-huh. and then when i played uh i think the next console shooter i, I don't remember what it was but mm-hmm. i it took me a minute yeah like to like oh okay i mean you know yeah it takes a minute to like even understand the, the language yeah uh like i i've i've saw i've i've seen my brother show hyperdot to people a lot and that game, in, in terms of like video games, is extremely simple because there's really only one thing you need to know, and that's move with the control stick. Right, and there are three things on the controller that you can do that with. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Two sticks and the D-pad. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of options for players. Uh, but a lot of people are just scared away from the like even the controller itself mm-hmm. because like there's all these things on there, even though you don't need them. And uh, just like the idea of moving with the control stick is already kind of foreign because... That's not how you move in real life. Yeah. So it's it's like it's still something you have to get used to. It's something that I don't really think about very often. I take my I take for granted a lot. That game needs trackball controls. <laughs> it could so you can put it in bars. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. That'd be a good place for it. Yeah. It's like how do you teach people um, that in a way that they can? It's not condescending, or but also like mm-hmm. you know. Helpful. <laughs> it helps to imagine where where you, the things you don't, aren't familiar with, mm-hmm. and I'm sure there's a class of gamer who that there is no example. But for me, it's like MMO controls, like the number key for all the different shortcuts. And oh like, man, there's so many. And there's, keys. A, there's a lot of conventions in MMOs that uh-huh. help people onboard to other games of its type. But um, that, and I guess um, MOBAs are like that too. We have a lot of keyboard shortcuts That's that are sta- sort of standard in some yeah. sense. Um, I feel utterly lost, and I professionally use a keyboard every day. So mm-hmm. like. Well, I mean, one way that helps is like just make sure that the key makes sense for what you're trying to do. Like, oftentimes the map button to pop up the map is the M button. Uh-huh. I mean, because grenade is G and and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, that helps a little bit. I mean, it only gets you so far. Though. It uh, it really does. You're right. Yeah, yeah, because then you got F ones and F twos and all that. <laughs> that's that's MMOs though. Oh <laughs> uh, man, speaking of control schemes, Elite Dangerous is a game that I have such a hard time with. Yeah, uh, because. Yeah, you're in space, so you can go literally any direction. And, like, I've had to change it all around so that my strafing and turning, like, flipping around oh, keys yeah. are all separate or, like, different than they, the defaults and stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's so many shortcut keys that you can <laughs> make. And, like, like, Dylan shares his control scheme files out with people who are starting, so you can just, like, import it. Because oh, wow. he's like, this is much better. Then they're all on the controller. Yeah, yeah. And then you like have only a few on the keyboard that you have to do. Mm. But yeah. Goodness. Crazy. That, that seems like That's definitely a genre where the convention, because it's not as the, the, the uh, fully free moving space uh, simulator, mm-hmm. is not, there aren't, it's not, as po- not popular enough to have developed one standard for yeah. controls or for like visual indicators. Like how do you, what's the horizon in space? Like if if there is none, then what's the convention we're going to use instead yeah. to do that? You know, like and there doesn't seem to be an agreement. 
uh, amongst that thing. I, I played Descent long ago, which was one of the first games like that, mm. where it was basically Doom, but like it, but you know, uh, but in all dimensions and whatever. And that game, you get lost so quickly because it had nothing to help you, and that's kind of still true, mm. right? Right. Yeah. Some of the, some games are just so unique that like they have to create their own language for themselves. Yeah. In order to get it to work, which is also fine. Yeah, that's totally fine. Like uh, you, you, it's just yeah. You can like making up your own language for your game is totally fine too. I mean, like fighting games are weird in that they all have different kinds of. Some fighting games have a heavy hit and a light hit, and some fighting games just have different buttons for the different ways you attack, like horizontal versus vertical. They're yeah. all different. Like they make sense for whatever game you're trying to make. So that's a really good one because fighting game controls. So sometimes the famous, like the uppercut, is you just you roll your thumb yeah. over the the D pad or whatever, yeah. like in an uppercutty motion. Yeah, like that. There's there's still some of that. In, in in games where they tried in fighting games, right? They yeah. try to like uh, physicalize it and make the metaphor. Mm-hmm. But there's just too many things to do yeah. for that all to work for everything. Yeah. Right? Oh, that reminds me of uh, there's the skate game that people really wanted to, to talk about at E3 this year, and then they got the the session game or whatever. It's a separate thing. But anyways, <laughs> uh, skate has controls that like sort of try to mimic uh, the actions you would do when you're actually skating. Ah, uh, with the thumbsticks, right? Yeah, with the thumbsticks, yeah. which was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, it was kind of hard to get into, but once you got it, it felt, it felt cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the question of like how much to abstract versus how much to simulate. Mm-hmm. I think there's, it's contextual depending on what type of game works best for that. Right. Yeah. Well, now we're on to the sequel to my topic. <laughs> <laughs> that was a gimme. <laughs> yeah, that one was easy. <laughs> Uh, this is my topic, the long-awaited sequels. Um, yeah, so I want to talk about uh, sequels and games and how they're different from other sequels in other properties. And yeah. like, you know, it's a, it's a definitely a big industry topic. I think people are familiar with sequels if they played any video games mm-hmm. um, because they're much more common, uh, I think, than even in films, which has become, I mean, the entertainment industry is is franchise and sequel-based uh, anyway, but games ever so much more so. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the main difference, is, uh, I think, is that, uh, for the perception anyway, is that people tend to think that movie sequels are get worse and worse. They're cashing in. They trade on a, 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 an interesting thing and they ground it. You know, There's no edges left and mm-hmm. it gets worse and worse. Mm-hmm. There are some exceptions. Um, but uh, in games, uh, sequels tend to be get better and better uh, because they're refined experiences. And uh, on the other hand, stories in games... Uh, you know, have the same mixed history as stories in film. True. But it just says there's more two games than that, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I kind of maybe just talk about a bunch of sort of uh, famous examples, good, bad, the sort of model that things use. Yeah. Um, the thing I'm thinking of, the, the example I think of for like sequels being a like a thing in games is like the Batman Arkham games. Okay. Which are like each one is, is better than the previous one. Uh, I mean, that's subjective. Sure. Uh, but... Like there's more to it. It's the refined. It becomes more of true version of itself. Mm-hmm. It's like it had three tries to get it to, to be what it wanted to right, be. Right. Yeah. And I think that's true for a lot of these franchises, which, um, uh, like it sort of, um, they have a vision and they can they can get most of the way there, and it's a complete idea. And then like the once they get another crack at it, they can sort of do it more like how they wanted to do it. Like so, there's that 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 pull between. Um, refinement and innovation i guess yeah some sequels are just totally different mm-hmm. and that's a big strength of them but gamers generally buy a sequel because they want more and better of the same which isn't like a knock on that that impulse that is what sometimes can be good about these things mm-hmm. um so let's there's a bunch of really famous good ones so like mario 3 might be the most famous like sequel that did that where it was basically 
the sequel to Mario one There's Mario two. We've talked about that on the show before. Mm-hmm. It's a whole nother thing um, where it just took exactly that formula and just was more and better and you know that's it more and better right yeah um and then mario 64 is another type of sort of sequel which reinvents a thing while keeping its it sort of the core intact right and i think that change from from mario world to uh, mario 64 is important to that franchise because now every new mario can be very different yeah because that's Mm -hmm. a part of the core of that franchise and so sequels, in order to be the same, it has to be different, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that's, they, they get to have their cake and eat it too a little bit. Um, they get to call back to the old and they get to try something like totally new and different. They get to break things. They get to, they don't have to include every feature. Like that's the, that's the, that's the, the goal all franchises hope to is to be able to have that freedom uh, to do and also be as good as that, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, Martha, you brought up Riven. Yeah. Uh, as a, as a, a, a famous sequel. What's so great about Riven? Um, well, it's a sequel to Mist, and um, it was they had like updated graphics, and <laughs> like the story just expanded to be more way really cool and interesting. And you learned all this backstory about like who the fam this family was, and like what's going on, and how these the mechanics of these worlds work, and yeah. stuff like that. And it was like. It was awesome. Yeah, Mist was a story. Riven was a world. Yeah. Right? Yeah, you got to explore. Mm-hmm. And like they didn't hand you stuff. It was like, yeah, it was cool. Yeah, yeah. And there were so many discs. <laughs> <laughs> so many. <laughs> oh, right, because that game did come out on DVD, but it was on, it was on like seven CDs or something in its first launch. Right? Yeah, that's the version I had. Yeah. <laughs> where every time you would go to a new island or whatever, it would be like, Please insert disc five. <laughs> <laughs> right. And because it was an, a sort of a free roaming game, you swap discs out all the time. You'd do like two and five and four and whatever. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Because <laughs> it was whatever content that was. Goodness. <laughs> like either, I wonder if, is it each disc had the core game engine on it or did that just live in memory when you launched it? I'm you know, super curious about the I don't know. Yeah, now yeah. I really want to know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so another really good one that's like that is Portal 2, where it really opened up the world and became a bigger thing. Um, a portal was such a was a surprise hit. Like every Valve success has just been on accident, and this is totally one of them. And <laughs> <laughs> I don't disagree. Where they're like, like they they uh, was a a, a a university student I think came with this concept for uh, portal. It had a different name at the time. Yeah. Uh, the the mechanic was interesting. Uh, Valve uh, uh, hired that person and then uh, worked on um, uh, Kim Swift. Is her name I think. And um, uh, you guys can, someone can fact check me on that. Um, and uh, they, they worked on this game and they, they sort of like kind of put it in the Half-Life universe. There was like some hints in the first portal of that uh, because again, Valve doesn't want to come up with new ideas all the time. And so um, they just like, well, what are we going to do with this? Well, we'll put it out for a couple bucks on PC and then like we'll put it as like, uh, like product seven in this compilation disc of older titles called the Orange Box which was uh, on uh, Xbox and PlayStation 3. And uh, it, the Portal was the standout of that. Like, mm-hmm. this was a, it was a, had a sequel to Half-Life on it, and people were more excited about Portal. Like, that's how big a deal that was. Yeah. And so the sequel was just like, everyone was just chomping at the bit for the sequel. I remember when Gabe Newell at E3 was on Sony's stage mm-hmm. and announced Portal 2 coming to PlayStation, and that Portal 2 would be best on PlayStation 
you know, which is a weird marketing thing. Yeah. But like, I remember what a big deal that was like, because people really like one, uh, uh, Gabe Newell had said a bunch of terrible things about PlayStation like six months earlier or something <laughs> like, okay. cause whatever. Yeah. Um, but like, uh, Drama. yeah. So like PlayStation <laughs> three was like the lead platform, at least, at least from the marketing standpoint, mm. instead of the lead for, for that. Um, and you could sync your steam account to your PlayStation account. Like, so I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but like that portal two was a huge deal mm. and it, but it's been so long since then that we forget other than the game itself. Um, I, we sort of forget all the stuff surrounding it was really interesting. Um, and, uh, and like only a sequel could do that. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, totally. a, like a new IP from a famed developer could maybe do that. Like I know like Bethesda has this new space, uh, uh um, a sci-fi themed game that's going right. to be out in a couple of years that no one knows anything about. Right. Yet. And people are excited about it because yeah. it's from Bethesda. And mm-hmm. that, that is, you know, you almost, you could almost argue that it's a, it's as much a sequel as anything else because yeah. of, for those, at least at the, in that aspect. Sure. But a lot of times sequels allow companies to, to do more than just release a product. They can like change how, uh, how the release models work or like Half-Life 2 is how, you, uh, how Steam launched. Right. Oh yeah. Or what, I don't think it was the first Half Life. It was Half Life Two because people were like the only way they could play it was on Steam, and so yeah. they had to download Steam, yeah. and so people hated that at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's another example. Half Life Two, uh, a, a big sequel that was just bigger and better. Yeah. And well, yeah. I, I I like what you brought up about like that sequel thing because like making a sequel is sort of a safe option for yeah. for AAA developers because like they know that if this game was popular in the past, that they can get those fans to probably buy this game again. Yes. Um, and they might be able to do a, f- a few newer things with it or like expand upon it and make it bigger and whatever else. But like they know as a result of that, that they can do that because it's 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 likely that the money will come back. Whereas making a new IP is scarier because like you don't know if people will buy this game or not unless it's similar to other games. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And other popular games or your previous work. Yeah, that sort of that uh, sequels play it safe is like it's a, it's it's really a two sided coin because mm-hmm. like and it's actually this is sort of true of movies as well. Like only Marvel movies can do something weird like release Guardians of the Galaxy and expect a billion dollars. Yeah. Um, whereas a, a a normal action franchise has has to play it safe if they want to introduce a new IP to an audience. And that's true of games as well. Yeah. Like games that uh, are that are long running and established have the freedom uh, to experiment a mm-hmm. little bit. Uh, which isn't to say that they do that all the time. That's true. Case in point, like Call of Duty, which has gone back and forth between like something new and interesting that people think, oh, they're finally doing something new and interesting. And then this is exactly the same as the last year. It will sell great. Right. Like, yeah. People <laughs> want the new Call of Duties to be different mm-hmm. and fun and exciting, but also the exact same and nothing much <laughs> changed and stuff. That's word for word my critique of Smash. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> which is that's another great example. Yeah. Uh, Melee it was a sequel to the original Smash Brothers, mm-hmm. and as far as I understand, the original Smash Brothers was not a hit. It wasn't huge. It yeah. was like successful. Yeah, it was like I mean, it was like it didn't sell as well as Mario Kart or whatever. I guess yeah. even Smash now still doesn't. But mm. um, it wasn't like the biggest thing on there. The, in the novelty of all the, fr- the characters being together was the big sell of yeah. that. Um, but the gameplay of melee is what is led that series to preserve. I mean, as much as all the Nintendo fanboyism has kept a lot of that franchise alive, mm-hmm. it's the core like fighting game mechanics, the uh, unique mechanics of it that is really what its fans like about it. What melee's fans specifically like about me. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's true. Like there are melee, f- oh boy, there are <laughs> melee fans uh-huh. and then there are everyone else smash fans. Yeah. Melee fans are the ones, this is why they're still making GameCube controllers for the Switch and making it functional for it. It's because Melee fans need it to be Melee, basically. Yeah. And it's frustrating. 
Side like, note on that, uh-huh. they're doing it again this time with Smash Ultimate. It's I like, know. It's like, oh, and there'll be GameCube controller support. It's like, why? Because GameCube controllers are good. I mean, they're, they're not bad. Yeah, they're fine, but yeah. like, they're not like those pinnacle of design. Agreed. Anyway, but the especially that D-pad. It's the only D-pad Nintendo ever made that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, nothing gets worse than Xbox 360 D-pad, so. GameCube one's pretty bad. <laughs> it yeah, it's, it's anyway. not great. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing that gets me about it is mm-hmm. that they're doing it in such like a half-hearted way. Mm-hmm. You, they had they made this like a uh, dongle thing that you pl- have to plug into two USB ports, and then it will do four GameCube ports, uh. and then you plug a regular GameCube controller in it. It's been eighteen years. Uh. Just make a USB GameCube controller. Right? Like, <laughs> what is the problem? Right? Come on, Nintendo. <laughs> that feels like it would be easier. It'd you probably, know, <laughs> an alternative less. is just. Don't make GameCube controllers. Well, there's Move that. Move on also. with your lives. <laughs> this has been Stephen's Smash Corner. Yeah. <laughs> what are we talking about again? <laughs> sequels. Speaking of fighting game sequels, uh, I do want to mention that Street Fighter Two is like the definitive fighting game because, yeah. like, it actually brought combos and all of, a lot of the modern uh, fighting game things into right into the world. Speaking of the language of games, <laughs> yeah, uh, that is where a lot of that was formed. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, because the first Street Fighter is, I mean, can you describe it to me? I've, I've seen, I keep um, forgetting what the deal it's, was. It's kind of like Street Fighter 2 without any of the combos and interesting stuff, but yeah. also you play as Ryu and Ken, and they're like the same character. Yeah. So like you're just basically fighting. It's those two yourself. characters, one-on-one. Yeah. It's just, but and that's it. with almost none of the mechanics of right. a fighting game. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, another one, uh, Ms. Pac-Man yeah. is a really famous arcade one from long ago uh, where it, there's a great story and um, rather than recount it all, we can maybe do a link. There was a great GDC postmortem, but also this story's been written up from time to time mm-hmm. where um, Pac-Man was so popular and so there were a lot of unauthorized um, ROM hacks basically in pizza parlors all across uh, America. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a pretty common cottage industry for um, uh, like hobby shop developer companies to uh, take these boards, make their own versions of these games that would have more features and stuff. Mm-hmm. And there was a company that did this uh, for Pac-Man, and it was really popular. And um, uh, 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 Namco just said, uh, hey, can we just buy it from you and release it as the sequel? Yeah. And that's essentially what they did. And that's what Ms. Pac-Man is. So, if you, I mean, really, you can't find the original Pac-Man in most places because Ms. Pac-Man was an even bigger hit. Mm. And that is the definitive Pac-Man experience. Mm-hmm. Well, as far as I understand, I'm sure there's people who have uh, other opinions on that subject. Yeah. But, um, I find I, that's a great story. I love mm-hmm. that one. Yeah, we'll link to something. But again, it's about it's iteration, and that's, that's the key to software development is iteration. And yep. so it's sort of why sequels kind of work. You know, yeah, like Borderlands Two being much better than Borderlands yes, One. Yes, <laughs> you insisted this go on the list. Yes. So tell me all about it. Well, it's because I played them in backwards order. So I played yep. the third one first, and then the second one. Uh-huh. And uh, and then I tried playing the first one. And I was like, oh my god, how <laughs> did how did this become popular? Because in the first one, like they didn't ha- have hardly any voice acting Mm -hmm. and they didn't have um like a map they had a map if you went into the menu but they didn't have like a hud map they just had a compass that would have like points on it that was like steven would like that game you know um i actually i got into the first borderlands more than borderlands 2 so (laughs) yeah kind of Get out. <laughs> Kicked out of the clubhouse. Bye, everyone. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, um, but yeah, uh, in Borderlands 2, they added, like, they changed around a bunch of the, how the UI worked and they've added the map and 
the story was like fully flushed out and they had um, fully voice acted lines for everybody. Mm -hmm. And it just, the, it was improved upon everything that they did. Yeah. More and better. Yeah. Right. Which is like, that's, that's a thing that sounds really simple, but it's like a big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so maybe let's talk about some of the really bad ones. Um, so along it's sort of a twist on what we said before, like, uh, Martha, you were talking about Mist 5? Yes. Yeah? Oh, it was terrible. I didn't finish it. Oh, okay. I only played the first part. Because they got rid of, like, so I know you really liked Uru. Uh-huh. And Uru was fun, but I didn't really consider it a Mist game because it didn't have live actors in it. Right. And they, that's what they did with um, the fifth one is they used the same thing that they did for Uru. Right, it, was, had, it was a first person adventure game. It wasn't node based. It was, it had very little of the mist formula. Yes. Oh. Yeah. And so it didn't really feel like a mist game. And so I rejected it. <laughs> yeah, it also took place in the Uru setting because uh, like fun behind the scenes story, mist five. For, uh, so Uru was a spinoff that was meant to be an MMO uh, in the mist, the world of mist, but then uh, Ubisoft didn't give it enough money. And so they released it as a single player adventure that was basically mist but instead of taking place in, in the crazy world, you started out on Earth and explored. So it was sort of a Mist game, but because it was envisioned as something else, it didn't really catch on with Mist fans, but it had its own fan base. And it was really core to the lore of Mist in a way that when Mist 5 came out, which was supposed to be an expansion to Uru, but then wasn't because money again. Because mm. um, like, Cyan has an really interesting history about like big ambitious projects that get cut down and then still being able to ship something anyway. Um, so kudos to them. But like it's really you wonder what, what could have been. But yeah, Mist Five. It, it really it was a, it was a sort of a sequel to Uru more than it was a sequel to Mist. And Mist Three and Four were not developed by Cyan because Cyan was busy making Uru. Um, and so uh, all um, they're they're great games. I think we were talking about before. Like yeah, they. I really liked all like two, three, four. Yeah, they really are all great um, because the story is really good, and and that's the main draw of those games. Um, although, I mean, the puzzles, of course. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah, Mist Five is just an Uru game, it, pretty much, and it has a lot of the same characters. And it has this interesting epilogue that feels a little tacked on to like tie it back to Atris and all those characters and stuff. Um, but I loved it because I loved Uru so much. So it was it was that was for me. Like, well, I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> but that's definitely a case of a sequel being more similar to like a film or, or book sequel in that the story is the main part of it. And it really is determined whether you like it or not. Right. And it didn't really hit with you because it felt like a side story to you. It, the perspective wasn't right. Like not just of the, you know, the, the gameplay, but the perspective of the story wasn't quite the same. And it had a different milieu. Like it was just not the same. It wasn't a missed game. Right. Yeah. Uh, in that, in that sense. And to me, it worked for me because it was something I was familiar with and liked, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, it all has to do with your expectations, too. Yeah. Like, I think a lot of these things, when you come into them and you're expecting them to be a certain way and then they're not that way, you can either, like, if you end up liking it, then it'll be cool. But if it's, like, if it's just not right, you yeah. not exactly what you wanted, you can feel disappointed. Yeah, yeah you know, that's kind of the reason why I, it, I'm going to sound real hypocritical because I'm extremely hyped for Smash Ultimate and uh-huh. Soul Calibur 6, but like I kind of don't like sequels in a way. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because. Waiting uh, for you to make this work. Yeah. <laughs> well, my issue with it is because like the game that like that came out already, it, it exists. And like what oftentimes what people want from sequels mm-hmm. is just more of the same thing. Yeah. But just more of it, in which, especially nowadays, like we can release DLC. 
and and patch things and add more junk and whatever else. It's like way easier to get more of whatever game you really like. Yeah, you don't need a sequel for it. Right, as often. But um, what I as a game developer, I think what I want from a sequel is I want the ga- I want a better version of this game I just made, and that might mean taking out some of the features that were extraneous. Mm-hmm. Or or tightening up some of the features that are in the game already that to make it even better yeah. or something like that. And oftentimes fans will like chew you out for that kind of stuff. Yeah, that I and and that frustrates me a lot of the time because like they're just they want to make the game better and and maybe that wasn't the direction that you expected it to be, but like that's what they wanted to do as game developers. Yeah, but like at the same time, also like you're paying for this game and it's not what you expected, so like it makes sense that like you would be disappointed. Yeah, if it was like this way, um, right? Like yeah. you know, uh, you know, like a, a roller coaster is fun, but if mm-hmm. you paid to go on the water slide, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, that's kind of like that. It's kind of like yeah. that. It's yeah. You know, you touch on this sort of the difference between like a, a new product and an improved, proving product, mm-hmm. and that's certainly the case. Like you have the annualized sequels, you have your Call of Duties, your Maddens, your Assassin's Creeds, mm-hmm. but then you also have your games as a service. Yeah, uh, and then in the middle of there, you have something like Destiny. Oh, which has a sequel, but yes. also has con- constantly evolves weekly patches. But then when the sequel comes around, you don't carry your progress over. It's not an MMO. Mm-hmm. Now, Martha, you're a Destiny player. Yeah. So like, well, actually, I'm just a Destiny Two player. Oh, really? Okay. I never played the. Well, I watched Dylan play the first one. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, but yeah, I think that Destiny Two was a lot more pop. Like it feels more alive than Destiny One yeah. felt. Um, mostly because they. Like, I think when Destiny 1 came out, they didn't really have everything set up in it yet, and they had the wrong voice actor, <laughs> and <laughs> just made everything weird. Yeah. Um, and then, like, I hear, like, Polygon people talking a lot about how Taken, like, they made a DLC for the first one called Taken King, and how that, like, saved the game and made it fun for everybody, because uh, yeah. it added all these features in that were, like, were really awesome and made it, like, really fun. Um, and it had an actual story instead of being like, uh, the darkness versus the light. That's what they're called, the bad and the good. And I'm the speaker and you're the guardian of the light <laughs> against the darkness. Uh-huh. <laughs> Are you engaged yet? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but yeah. I liked I liked the sequel. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know that that franchise when it was announced, like it's going to be a huge ten year project. Activision paying a lot of money for, and um, and I think they talked very openly about how like that DLC you're talking about that sort of fixed the game, about how like it was always meant to evolve as it went, yeah. and so that's why it's weird because it's not a, there's no subscription model. You just pay for it. And you, the DLC is you, there's and there's cosmetic items. So there's there's a business model in place to keep that development going. But um, but like the idea of doing a sequel instead of just continually adding on to it, it that must have been like a tough call. Yeah. I mean like how are we going what's the how is the lifetime of this franchise going to work? Yeah. Well, like if the game is if this the thing you're trying to add to this game is so much different from the original game that it doesn't make sense to like just add on to it. Yeah. It makes sense to just make a new game like this happens in fighting games especially more recently because mm-hmm. like their fighting games have patches all the time yeah but there's street fighter 4 and ultimate street fighter 4 and all um, ultimate no is it ultimate it's super street fighter 4 and then super street fighter 4 2016 edition and then there's ultra right there's ultra street fighter mm-hmm. 4 yeah there's you know there's a bunch of different but street can't they just get away patches. with that because there's a history of that kind of i mean there is but like, the reason there's a history of it because like they didn't have patches back in the day, so right? They but now they're making. But now that they do. Do they need that? Uh well, I think there's some differences between the different ones. 
Okay. That like, I, I'm not a Street Fighter player, so I don't know all the differences. <laughs> but I know there are some differences. Some like they changed some of the mechanics and stuff, and it's not just literally a patch. And yeah. they're selling it to you for forty bucks. Right. Um. There's more to it than that, but like I don't know how much of it there is. But like that's an example of it. If they change a lot of the systems to the point where like it feels like a different game, mm-hmm. then that's why they would make a sequel. At least that's what my thinking. Sure. That's my sure. understanding of it is. Yeah. Plus, usually sequels are big like they're longer mm-hmm. than a patch or like a dlc campaign would be right like the both but a lot of the destiny 2 and destiny 1 um like dlc campaigns were like maybe a fourth of the regular game mm-hmm. okay. length long so yeah mm-hmm. and 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 yeah it's like a node in the tree so like you have the first one and then have DLC as little branches coming off of it and then the next one is like another node that branches will come off of if that makes that's how I think of it. Mm. Oh sure, that makes sense, yeah. And I suppose without a subscription model, eventually you're going to you can't you can't keep charging $10 or whatever for like new content. You just you want to do a big thing and charge real money for it. Yeah. yeah. You know. That's true too. So that's interesting. And yeah, the players have responded differently. Some are like perfectly fine otherwise like i don't want to lose this progress of this character mm-hmm. it's like a corrupted save kind of right? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah <laughs> um uh, steven you want to talk about spiritual sequels as well oh yeah i wanted to bring that up just because like there are some games that are like they're like refined versions of older games yeah. uh but they do everything better and they just release it as basically a new game that is not a sequel to a previous thing Right. Like, if you like this thing, you'll like this one, too. Right. Uh, and, and that can happen with the same developer can release an, a new version with, like, mechanics that are similar to a previous game. Yeah. It can happen for, a, like, a game that can be a to something long ago mm-hmm. that they had nothing to do with. Mm-hmm. Um, or it could be that uh, a franchise changed ownership. Yes. And so the title, the, the characters had to change. Yeah. Something that's like that. That's also true. It's happened. There's a bunch of examples, right? Mm-hmm. Well, my, my favorite example of this is uh, Rocket League. Um, it was based off of the game where we... Uh, it's it's called Supersonic Acrobatic Rocket Powered Battle Cars, super long. Uh, that's the original one. But um, they like refined the game and stuff. They released it on Xbox 360, and then uh, like it it was with middling success. Um, but like they uh, they had a decent enough of a fan base, and they kept playing the game and stuff. And they requested things, and the developers wanted to keep adding stuff and re- uh, refine stuff and things. And then they eventually like just refined it to the point where they were like, we should just make this a new game again. Uh, and and re-release it as as Rocket League, and then they did it, and then boom, it was ex- explosively popular. Yeah, yeah. So, and then they also had a big change in their marketing and approach. Yes. Like, I mean, Rocket League is very sports themed. Yeah. And so they decided to make the the um the fields of play a lot simpler. Yeah. Like I think in the the previous one, it was much more like they had some yeah like wild fun ramps and funhouse stuff, mm-hmm. and they decided to make it more um uh, digestible. Yeah. Almost. And I think a lot of the fans back then they did didn't they like. They either like showed they didn't like it because they didn't play on it very much, or like yeah. they actively said like I don't like this thing. And they like as the developers were like, we probably shouldn't have these in there because they're just not popular. And people aren't right, right. Play them. Um, but also like they changed their name from a six-worded title to a two-word title. Yeah, and that's a lot easier yeah. for people. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so well, I mean, I think that branding change is really important because it 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 I think it informs future decisions about it. Like yeah. it went from. I mean, that other name is the most adult swimmingest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and then they went from that into this, like, esports uh-huh. kind of aesthetic. Yeah. And so that informs the development. It informs the type of people who will be interested in it. And mm-hmm. it can be the symbiotic relationship. Yeah. And so that's a big, important part of 
building a franchise is like is all the pieces of it, not not just like the Im- improving the mechanics from piece to piece. What turns it from a series of games to something bigger like that? I think yeah. is, is is that those connections? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but I, I guess I just wanted to bring that up as a side thing. Yeah, sometimes uh, you want to make a sequel, but you don't want to. Because like it might be a sequel to a game that was not well received yeah. either. And hey, there's an well, example of that, which is my <laughs> game Metro Nexus, which oh. <laughs> is a spiritual <laughs> yeah. successor to uh, City Connection, right? Which I've, I've listeners who've heard me talk about it before have heard it many times before. But uh, that was a game that was not well received. It has I don't, maybe a bit of a cult following. I don't mm-hmm. know, but it was just one of the games I played as a kid, and I thought everyone else did too. Uh, and I'm like, but it's not great. I can do better. And so <laughs> that's been that's that's the story of that one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, I think that's, and that's really, that's fun because you, uh, when I started working on Mentor Nexus, it was very much a, like, I don't know what I want to make, but uh, it was more like, oh, let's see how this, I'll demo this mechanic I remember from long ago. Mm-hmm. And I actually didn't own a copy of the game. I just, it was just all from my memory of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking like, um, yeah, I can, I can, I can do this better. And so just doing it from scratch, but with the same kind of like core idea of it is nice. Mm-hmm. And when I play test it and someone goes, oh, this is like, like like a better version of City Connection. I'm just like, yes, <laughs> someone figured it out. I did it. <laughs> but the thing about spiritual sequels yeah. that is important mm-hmm. is that they don't have, there's no, you don't have to surface that information. Yeah. Because that's the that's what makes it different from, not just the different IP or sometimes different developer or whatever, or different providence, but like it is, it's not trading on the previous one in, in an effort to promote that one, right? It's just, yeah. it's, it, it's, it is spiritual and, and, and that's all it is. Right. Um, I, another example is Elite Dangerous, which is oh, yeah? a spiritual successor to Elite, ah, uh, which okay. was like one of the first like 3D space sort of things, but it was still in like pixely graphics. Yeah. So it was like very hard. Like I've seen screenshots of it and it was like, well, how could you tell uh-huh. where you like are or whatever? But mm. yeah, they took that idea and made this, you know, huge sprawling space exploration game out of it. Um, Nice. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Maybe we can, I mean, we can probably maybe look up and see if there's a, there's gotta be a list of these on the internet. So we'll see if we can find a link or two. Um, because there's always some surprises. Like you're like, Oh, I didn't know that. And then you look into the old one and you're like, Oh, that's so cool. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Stuff like that. Uh, so let's end this topic with, um, ambitions for you guys. Uh, what, what sequels would you want to make either to, uh, like in my case, a spiritual sequel or like a game you're working on that you can imagine what the third or fourth one, like, Pie in the sky. What do you what, what do you hope you have? Like, what does Fingen's three look like? Three. You got to finish the first one. Let's first. not. We, we don't have to focus on that at all. <laughs> it's already out, right? Future Steven knows. Yeah, Fingen's two has got some pretty good reviews. Yeah. It's, it's been out for a year or two. Yeah, it's time to work on the third one. Yes. Like, what does that look like? Hmm. I, I guess I've imagined Fingen's two being a twin stick shooter. Yeah. Where like you, it's more like an open world exploration. Shooter thing, but like there are encounters, and it, it's more roguelike than the way it is now. Ah, okay. Which I would I would appreciate. So, Fingenus Three would probably just be a refinement of that. Yeah, maybe they take it to space. <laughs> Fish in space. <laughs> That's good because a lot of that is ideas you guys had in the development of Fingenus that mm-hmm. you just kept in your back pocket. Yeah. That's that's really cool. That's a cool approach, right? And especially arcade games, old school uh, retro games, their sequels tend to be very different, but have the sort of a the heart of it intact. And mm-hmm. that looks like that seems like the direction you'd be going. Yeah, that's what uh, I would like. I think that's what I would want for Fingens Three. Yeah, more penguins. <laughs> Definitely more penguins. I feel similarly about if there's ever a widget satchel too. 
is basically all the ideas we decided we didn't want to that was just too out, or out of scope mm-hmm. like you know climbing wall, yeah. wall jumping yeah. stuff like that other platform mechanics I think would be really fun that we didn't have a place for and we didn't want to design for yeah. this time around mm-hmm. um, but we could make a game that feels totally different but is still part of that world yeah I would love to, I would love to do something like that one day yeah like Commander Key gets a you know, promotion goes to a new station yeah <laughs> it's just bigger yeah it'd be an out- outpost on a planet or yeah, something and instead. you just yeah. need to break more stuff yeah <laughs> <laughs> I love that Martha, you have a whole world planned for your point-and-click adventure. Oh yeah, yeah, lots of di- lots of sequels, <laughs> uh, lots of different going lots of different places, like to the beach or to space <laughs> yeah. or in the forest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the cool thing about your game is like the characters are a lot of what like make it right. So yeah. like you can just port them to different places, and then that uh, they have an adventure in a forest. And like that yeah. would be cool. Yeah, like they're having a new adventure in the forest. I'd sign up for that. Right, you could make a card game version of it. You can make a platformer for yeah. it. You could do. Don't give me that look. You, could, <laughs> <laughs> you can. You could do it in different styles because the story is what's core to it, right? Although point and click is really your inspiration, certainly. But there's other places to take it, right? It'd be easier than, than a, you might not want to, but there's it's easier for a, a property like that than it would be for some other types of games where the mechanics is more uh, core to it. Uh, to its like the heart of it, right? It'd be really weird to have a Fingens platformer, for example. Would it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. You just add springs to the bottom of the submarines. <laughs> Done. <laughs> <laughs> well, dang, that's Fingens four. <laughs> <laughs> There's a button for that in Unity, right? <laughs> yeah. Just add springs. Yeah. <laughs> You'd add gravity, and all of the bullets fall to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fingens now was physics engine. That's pretty. Cool. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. For Metro Nexus, I don't ever intend to do a sequel to that game. Mm-hmm. I have some DLC plans, and that's kind of part of the core of it, is that you go to the world cities, so DLC would be different cities. Yeah. But I don't, in my, in my wildest dreams, I don't imagine ever making another one, mm. weird, weirdly. Like, I mean, sometimes, I, well, I mean, I like that instinct that yeah. like, your game is just a complete thing, and you don't want to make another one. Of yeah. I think that's good. Yeah, and part of that is because it it's, is itself a spiritual sequel, yeah. that I feel like, I that I don't have an, I don't have ambitions to do more than that. I feel like this is the refinement. Yeah, in a sense. Yeah. Um. You know who the hell knows what, what, what you know what what'll happen, but mm-hmm. um. You know, like what would it turn? Maybe there'll be three of those and just one widget satchel. I don't know, but widget satchel is one where it feels more natural to me, uh, because it 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 comes from a tradition of games that has sequels. Yeah. As well. Yeah. You know. That's our show. If you haven't already, subscribe to Nice Games Club in your favorite podcast app and be sure to give it a good review if you liked it or are nice like us. We really do need to know you're out there, so leave a review and tell all your friends too. Hey, let me stop you there and just reiterate that for people because there's been a lot happening in the world of podcast apps. Yes. Google has a podcast app. Apple changed theirs to Apple Podcasts some time ago. Okay. So now's a good time to give your old pals at Nice Games Club review in your favorite podcast app. Five stars preferred. (laughs) Six if you can manage. (laughs) (laughs) All right, go on. (laughs) We're not picky. (laughs) Um, We also want to hear directly from you. So follow us on Twitter and all the other things at Nice Games Club. Lastly, you can find out more about the show and your nice hosts, as well as get all the links and show notes from this and other episodes at NiceGames.club. So until we start again, remember to play nice and make nice.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.